do that and turn up Isaiah 56. Let me sketch out a few bits of background as we come to this series. Perhaps you're unfamiliar with it. Uh, Isaiah lived around 720 years before Jesus Christ came in Jerusalem. And there's been some great archaeological finds in recent years. A few years ago, um, we uh, found uh, something called uh, Hezekiah's Buller. Now, in ancient times, they didn't have credit cards. They basically had seals. And seals were used to basically secure contracts and, and buy goods. And it was a kind of a promise of, 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 of wealth being exchanged for these goods. And a few years ago, King Hezekiah's seal, this clay impression, was discovered in Jerusalem. And then in February this year, incredibly, uh, they discovered a seal. Uh, and there's a few letters missing, but it looks very likely that it says this, belonging to Isaiah the prophet. Isn't that incredible? That, 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 that seal, it might have come from the very handprint of Isaiah himself. And I'm telling you this because when we come to the Bible, we're, we're not talking about sort of mythical fable. We're talking about real history. You can go to the British Museum, look, look at the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire. You can discover all these events in history that the Bible is referring to. This is genuine history. And uh, we're, we're starting in today on this final section of Isaiah 56. I'm going to read uh, the first eight verses on page 744. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and holds fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. So what is God doing in the world? Well, the answer is there in verse 8. Did you see it? This is what the sovereign Lord declares. He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. This is what God is doing. 
God is gathering a family for himself through the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing in the world today. Now here's an outline of what I want to cover this morning. I want to show you um, how God gathering this family for himself is the best news on the planet. And then I want to spell out two implications from this part of Isaiah that flow from the reality of who this God is, who is gathering a family. So let me just put Isaiah uh, into the big picture of the Bible and then kind of explain where we are in the storyline of Isaiah. God is the, is the loving, bountiful creator of the world. And he made everything good uh, in this world for life and our, en our enjoyment. And out of his love, he made us uh, to, to enjoy his world, but in relationship with him. That, that was God's big plan. But the reason that our world is broken and full of heartache is because we've cut ourselves off from this God. The next picture. We are uh, like cut flowers where the bloom is still there, but it's only for a few days. It's cut off from, from life, and, and so we are wilting and dying. That, that's our situation as human beings. We live selfishly pursuing the stuff God created without gratefulness to the God who gave it to us. Uh, we love and serve ourselves rather than loving and serving the very one who gives us life and everything. Now all of this happened through our first parents in the Garden of Eden. They rebelled and rejected God's word and so they were scattered out from the Garden of Blessing and away from relationship with God. And that's where death kicked into the world. And all of this is played out in every descendant since. And if you sort of started reading the Bible from the beginning, you would see that also this gets played out in the history of Israel itself. God saved a people out of Egypt and, and he brought them into a bountiful land that he'd promised to give them. A land of blessing to be lived in relationship with God. But, but by the time we get to Isaiah the prophet, he was called to preach about the inevitable scattering of the people as God's judgment for a people who repeatedly refused to listen to him and kept loving and serving the wrong stuff. Uh, the Babylonians, uh, uh, he, the, Isaiah tells the people, the Babylonians will come and invade and they will be scattered from the land. And many were taken into exile, forced to live in Babylon. And in essence, that is what the first 39 chapters of Isaiah is about. Isaiah confronting his own generation that were before him. But amazingly, despite their rebellion, God in his amazing love makes these promises of how he would send a son called Emmanuel. God with us. And then in chapters 40 to 55, the next big section of Isaiah, God promises that he's going to come and redeem his people. He's going to bring them out of their exile and slavery. And he's going to do that through a, a servant who's going to suffer greatly in their place. And through the death of this righteous servant, sinful people would be able to be declared righteous with God. So that once again, God would have a saved people 
gathered into a special relationship with him and brought back to their promised land where they can enjoy it. And then we get to this final section, Isaiah 56 to 66. And what we get here is, in a sense, teaching that Isaiah is directing to those who would return from being exiles in the land. He's, he's kind of writing long before all these events happened yet, but this section seems to be focusing on teaching those who will one day return from exile back to the land as they are waiting for the full outworking of all God's promises. Because in this section, we're going to see that God promises a conquering king that's going to deal with all evil, going to deal with all the, the stuff that is wrong and bring in a world, a new world, where there are no more tears and no more death. And so this section, I think, is highly appropriate for us today. Yes, it had something to say to uh, Isaiah's first hearers when he first spoke them and it had something particularly to say to those exiles who were returning back from Babylon but it also speaks to something in our history in our time because of course we're looking back through the historical events of the life of Jesus we see how he fulfills all these promises he came born of a virgin God with us he lived a, a sinless life life he was righteous in every way he fulfilled the promise of the suffering servant purposefully sacrificing himself in his death upon the cross and then raised from the dead it is through Jesus that our sins and rebellion are forgiven by God it is through Jesus that we're brought back out of our slavery and selfishness to sin and that we can experience this new life of being connected back to God and to become part of his family. So here we are in this time of history. We've seen the first coming of Jesus and we're awaiting his second coming as the conquering king. He's been the suffering servant. He will return again as the conquering king. He's going to bring in an everlasting kingdom, the Bible promises. And so as part of God's saved family, we are those now waiting for the world to come. And that's why I think these chapters have great relevance to us today. And so what is God doing in this time of history before Jesus returns? Isaiah 56 verse 8. He is gathering still others to them who's already gathered. This is what God's doing in the world. He is gathering a family through the saving work of Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is very good news for those who are cut off and, uh, from God and are wilting and dying. Now look, let me just spell out now what are some of the implications for God's gathered, saved family that are given to us in this chapter. There's two big implications here. Because of who God is, his family are to be marked firstly by a restful righteousness. Look at the first two verses again. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. I have a friend uh, who used to be a drug addict. In order to get his fix, 
he would uh, steal things, sell them to fund his habit. And he's been in and out of prison on multiple occasions. But since he heard the good news about Jesus, and he's put his trust in him, he's, he's, he's experienced some radical changes in his life. He's now got a real hunger for the word of God. Uh, he, he wants to be a learner of Christ. He's got a new determination to no longer be enslaved by his drugs. Uh, he no longer steals things. He's, he's got this desire to do what is right. And instead of living for himself and, and, and pursuing his own pleasure, he now is kind of investing his life in helping people who are coming out of prison to help them kind of get back on their feet and not choose the old life of crime. Now that's a dramatic story, but this is what happens when God gathers people into his family through the saving work of Jesus. They now desire justice and righteousness. You know, this is, this is because of who God is. God is altogether righteous. There's no evil in God. And uh, we know, as God's people, where history is heading. When it says here, my salvation is close at hand, my righteousness will soon be revealed, it speaks of the reality that as Jesus comes back as the conquering king, God's righteousness will soon be revealed. Uh, President Barack Obama keeps uh, quoting Martin Luther King, who said this, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I think that's what uh, verse 1 says. There is a day coming when Jesus returns and all evil and wickedness will be judged. Uh, it will be completely removed so that in Christ's kingdom there will only be good and righteousness. And so we know like where history is heading and so that shapes how we live now. In at least two ways. Firstly, knowing that we are morally sinful and, and rightfully condemned by the justice of God, when you get this, what you need to do is to run to Jesus for salvation before that day of judge and judgment and justice falls on us. Because it is through Jesus that our sins can be forgiven and that we're made right with God. He who was pierced for our transgressions he who was punished for our iniquities, who took our punishment to bring us peace. It is through Jesus that God takes repentant sinners and says, you are now right with me. I have made you righteous. And the wonderful thing is that when people do this, God gives us his Holy Spirit and he empowers us by his Spirit with new desires to live righteously. Just as I was telling you about my friend. So that's the first thing we need to do as we understand that the arc of the moral universe bends and eventually ends in, in justice is you run to Jesus for salvation. And secondly, as his saved people, one of the marks of his saved people is that we desire to maintain justice and do what is right. Now, I don't have time to develop this fully, but this, this shapes everything about our personal lives, our church life, and also the way in which we engage with our city and our nation. But there are two specific examples of what a righteous life will do in verse 2. And it is down to individual choices of each one of us whether we're going to richly enjoy this or not. 
Blessed is the man who does this, the man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Now, it might be surprising, really, when you think about justice, that the first issue is this, not desecrating the Sabbath. How does that work? Well, let's just think about this for a moment. Sabbath literally means not working, to stop work. And I want you to consider how revolutionary this was uh, in a pagan world where pagan masters did not give slaves a day off. And then you begin to see how this is an issue of justice and righteousness. Um, while there were slaves in Egypt, no days off. But here's the glory of being rescued and saved by this great God as he did at the Exodus. Um, he takes these people who uh, were beaten if they didn't keep producing stuff, even as they were given less stuff to produce it with, and he saves them and redeems them, and he says, you need to stop working one day a week. You need to rest. Because I'm a God who made the world in six days, and on the seventh day, I rest it. And God graciously builds into the cycle of life this pattern of work and rest. He graciously gives and sustains all of life. And he causes people to rest from their work for one day a week. And I think this is a wonderful thing when you think about it. This is a radical reset each week. It's a reminder, actually, if we take this seriously, that actually we are creatures who are dependent on a creator. That I stop for a, a day to not work is to say I'm trusting somebody else to take care of me that I'm relying on a God who loves me. Uh, that I stop every day, one day in a week, is a way of saying, I am not God at the center of the universe. He is God. I don't only live for myself. I live to worship Him. Life is more than work. God designed it that we would be about relating and resting and enjoying Him. Now, from the resurrection day onwards, uh, the Christians basically turned the, the, the Saturday Sabbath into the Lord's Day of, of Sunday because that's the day he rose from the dead. And this, this became a day especially when Christians sought to rest from their work and to gather with his people so they could worship and enjoy God together. And because... We worship a righteous God. Not only do we uh, want to set aside time in our week to kind of gather with his people and enjoy him, but we're going to be those who want to live righteously and keep our hands from doing any sort of evil. Now, I don't have time to fully develop all this, but it has massive implications for everything about our personal lives, about our church life, and too, um, as we think about relating to uh, this World. I'll let you work out what it has to say about zero hours contracts, the gig economy, and paying proper taxes if you're corporations. You can discuss that over lunchtime. But the first mark of God's people is restful righteousness. The second is this, an inclusive welcome. And that's what verses 3 to 8 are about. Who's welcome into God's family now? Who is God gathering? And this is really exciting if you're not from a Jewish background. 
Earlier in Isaiah 49, God speaking to this servant who will suffer says this, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, like that's the rest of us, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. See, the work of the, of the servant, though he is uh, from the line of Abraham, is a saving work that reaches the whole of the world. And here in Isaiah chapter 56, God addresses two groups of people who are earlier in the history of Israel were excluded. Uh, emasculated men, eunuchs, and uh, foreigners. And the Bible specifically says the, the Moabites and Ammonites aren't, aren't welcome to come to the temple. These were excluded from God's house, excluded from this corporate worship amongst God's people. Now, what is it about eunuchs? Well, it was pagan nations that made men eunuchs. God didn't want pagan practices of the nations to distort the faith and practices of his people. That's why foreigners and eunuchs were excluded. The law of Moses is given... um, is against any kind of measures that took away the possibility of fulfilling God's creation purposes, of, of uh, being able to have children. And so to sort of prevent this sort of stif- stuff happening, God says, look, you cannot enter my temple if you're a eunuch. Now, this is a very relevant issue for the exiles coming back from Babylon. Isaiah 39 King Hezekiah is told, uh, Babylon is going to invade, you're going to be carted off to exile, and some of your descendants will become eunuchs in Babylon. And so what is the status as the people come back from Babylon, back to the land, and it's full of foreigners, and some of the people coming with them are eunuchs? Are are they welcome? Are, Are they going to be part of the people of God? And the wonderful thing is that God wants them to be part of his family as well. Look at verse 3. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let not the eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. No, the foreigner, the eunuch, who want to be part of the people of God, who want to be bound to him as their covenant God, they are welcome. They too can serve the Lord. They can love him. They can worship him. They too can know the joy of drawing near to God, experiencing all the blessings of of a loving and eternal relationship with God. Though the eunuch will not have any physical family, he'll have something better. Significance, remembrance, welcome, belonging among the people of God, which is all the business of the memorial and the name. See, through Jesus... Uh, wherever his people gather will be a genuine house of prayer for the nations. And that's why I got Kyle to read Acts chapter 8 this morning. Because after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, his ascension to God's right hand, the pouring out of the Spirit, um, there's Philip, and he's told to run alongside a chariot. I love this scene, this Philip get along with this chariot and it turns out this, the, the, in the chariot is an Ethiopian official and because of the nature of his job is to serve Queen Candace uh, as, the, as the chief treasurer he's been made a eunuch 
So here you've got a foreigner and a eunuch, and he's in a chariot. And guess what? He's been to Jerusalem, although he wouldn't have been able to get there very far into the temple. He would have, he would have been excluded. But he bought the scroll of Isaiah. It would have been very expensive, but he got a scroll. And he's, and he's turns out, as Philip runs up next to his chariot, this guy's reading aloud from Isaiah. And guess where he is? Isaiah chapter 53, about the suffering servant. And uh, he sees Philip jogging alongside him. And he turns to him and says, so who, who is... Uh, Who's the writer speaking about? Is, is it himself or somebody else? And Philip goes, well, if you stop the chariot for a moment, I'll tell you. Uh, and so Philip gets in the chariot, and what does he do? He tells him the good news about Jesus. That all of this is about Jesus. And, and, and as he explains the salvation that Jesus brings about, the way that uh, that, that, that God makes sinners right with him through the suffering servant. They would have got all the way on to Isaiah 56, and surely he must have got to this point where he read about how the foreigner and the eunuch are now welcome and included. And it turns out the chariot is just pulling past a, 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 a pool of water. And so the, uh, the Ethiopian says, stop the chariot. He says, what's stopping me? I want in. Here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And do you see the wonderful way that baptism functions here? It is the public way that someone binds themselves to the Lord. We baptize people into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They publicly bind themselves in a covenant with the Lord, saying, I belong to him. I I, want to love him and serve him and follow him. And it is the way, too, that in the act of baptism that publicly we can all recognize, now here is another person who has been gathered by God through the work of Jesus into God's everlasting family, and we welcome them into the family of God as they are baptized. Here is the marker. And so, my friends, if you're a Christian and you've not been baptized, what hinders you? Let us know. We can fill up the tank. We'll baptize you. Come and speak to us. This is the mark of of identification with the Lord. And what I want to say to us today as we think about the implication of this for us at Charlotte Chapel is not only should we be a people who care about justice and righteousness as a church, but we are to be a people who give an inclusive welcome. All are welcome to the family of God. If you will turn from your sin and trust Jesus, you are welcome to belong. Whether you're Jewish or from another ethnic background, whether you are rich or poor, whether you are a heterosexual sinner or a homosexual sinner, whether you are single or married, whether you are male or female or trans, all who turn to to Jesus Christ who turn from their sin to trust Christ, are welcome to come. You see, as a church, as we understand the significance of this part of Isaiah, we're a church to be marked by restful righteousness and inclusive welcome. We must be the family of God who offer love and welcome to all that God saves and adds to his family. And so practically, what does this look like? Well, let me give a very specific, concrete example. Uh, When you come to church on a Sunday and you see 
uh, a stranger, someone who's who looks different to you. Perhaps they've got different skin color. Perhaps they've got different sort of clothes. Perhaps they look a bit alternative. What do you do? Let's say you, you, some of you get early. Most of you don't, but some of you get here early. And there's, someone, there, there's, there's, there's loads of seats around them. You walk in. What do you do? Well, what's our natural inclination? It's to create the donut. We find... Uh, a way to sit as far away from them as possible. Now, what does that say? We've not understood what God's doing in the world. What is God doing in the world? He is gathering people into his family through his son, Jesus Christ. And when we understand God's grace, that will overcome our natural instinct and instead will motivate us to go up to that person and say the terrifying words, hello. Do you think you could manage that? Hello. And instead of a donut hole, actually when grace grips us and we get what God's doing in the world, the stranger will become a magnet. Oh, fantastic, a new person. Must get there. They look interesting. They look quite different be interesting to meet them. Hello. Ask if you can sit with them. Introduce them to your friends in the family of God. If they don't know Jesus, well, what a wonderful news you've got to share with them. Say something about Jesus. Knowing that King Jesus came to seek and save the lost. You know, within our fellowship there are those who are single who will never marry uh, some uh, because they experience same-sex attraction but out of their faithfulness to Christ will remain celibate and unmarried others are single because they've just not met anyone they wanted to marry uh, but our church family should be better than having sons and daughters biologically we are to be a family that includes and loves all. What a privilege to be part of the family of God. What a privilege to be able to set aside a Sunday as the Lord's Day. Now we understand not everyone can do that. We're very thankful for doctors who, who work on Sundays to save people's lives and nurses and paramedics and other jobs like that. But, but as far as we're able to set aside the Sunday so that we can come and enjoy worshiping God amongst his people and through the joy of the gospel enjoy a fellowship with our brothers and sisters that is a genuine, loving, warm community. What a privilege. And what a privilege that we're in this season now as we await the conquering king where God loves to gather more people in that we have the opportunity of sharing this saving grace, that, that more are welcome, more can come. Come to him. Today, if you don't know him, come to him. He's a glorious king, amazing savior. Come to him. Because this is what God is doing in the world today. He is still gathering a family for himself through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this is amazing grace.
amazing love that you should choose to send your son to die for us. That you should raise him from the dead as our king, our returning king. Lord, even in the confusion of the world's politics, we thank you that we know what you are doing. So help us to be a people who live in this time of waiting to be about your plans and your purposes. Lord, help us to love the stranger. Help us to be a a community in Edinburgh that will be famous for loving each other, that will attract more and more to the glorious gospel of your Son. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.